Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Father and God, we thank you very much for your word. We thank you for creating us male and female in your image. We ask that as we consider your word tonight, you would pour out your spirit upon us. We pray that your word would be sharp and strong, that you would crush whatever needs crushing in our hearts, and you would make alive whatever needs to be made alive. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why does the world need fathers and husbands? Why should men marry and have children? This is my assignment. The short answer is that this is what you're made for. That's the short answer. Can I go home now? That's what you're for. You're for becoming husbands and fathers, marrying and bearing children. And when you embrace this calling... You make the world a better place, and you become a better man. I want to walk through this text, not every verse, but a bunch of it with you this evening, and demonstrate that this is all already here in Genesis 2. And we're going to look at other passages, and we'll draw off of other passages in Scripture, but I want, uh, I want to demonstrate to you that the fact that a man... Uh, uh, marrying a man, bearing children, um, a fact that this is his calling, his job, and as he embraces that calling, he makes the world a better place and he becomes a better man. All of that is right here at the beginning. Everything else is just confirmation. So God sets Adam in the garden in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Those are the two words that are are the, the two job descriptors that are given to Adam. He, he's put in the garden to tend and keep it. The word tend literally means to work, or it is often also used to serve. Okay, so in the Old Testament, frequently, if you see uh, somebody working or serving, it's pretty likely it's this word. It's a very common word in Hebrew. Um, likewise, the second word there, keep, is a little bit of an archaic use of that word, um, it literally means guard or watch over. So think of a watchman, think of a guard, think of a security guard, a soldier. Um, that's the task of Adam. So using those two words, we actually get kind of a cool lexical range that helps us, I think, uh, understand more fully what, Adam, uh, what Adam's job was from the beginning. Uh, to tend, work, serve, in order to do those things, he has to understand what he's tending. 
Right? He's to tend something, he needs to understand what it is that he's tending. This means that he needs to understand the nature of each part of creation, what it's for, what its possibilities are. So serving uh, a, a pear tree is going to look a lot different than serving uh, an ox. Uh, serving uh, a, a strawberry patch is going to look a lot different than uh, serving a spruce tree. Right? Th these are different things. They're made differently. They have different natures, and so they have different needs. And depending, and if you understand how God made them, what he made them for, and what they're good for, uh, then they're going to need um, certain kinds of tending, which will then um, cause them to be even more fruitful. They'll do more than when they began. This is all bound up in the idea of serving and working and tending. Adam needs to understand uh, what it is that he's serving. And so that other word, keeping, guarding, um, watching is also closely related. Adam needs to understand what something is like and what it is for and what its capabilities may be by watching it carefully. That's, that's bound up in that idea of keeping it or guarding it or watching it. He will serve it well by studying it, seeing how it responds to various conditions and challenges, uh, potential threats. So guarding means protecting the creation from things that would threaten it, um, but also watching over it carefully. How does it respond to the heavy rain? How does it, how does it respond um, perhaps when there's less rain? How does it respond in the direct sunlight? How does it respond in the shade? Um, how does it respond with this kind of food? How does it respond with that kind of uh, food? Serving means doing everything possible to create conditions in which each part of nature flourishes. So this is this is the task that's given to Adam right at the beginning. He's already got a lot on his list. He's been put in a garden that's in the east of the land of Eden, and there's this whole world. And his job is to serve it and to guard it. And think of that breadth that's in his job description. It's striking Then, having set man to this task, here's your job description, God observes that the man is not good alone and needs a helper comparable to him. So we see this in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So then God famously creates all the animals and bring them, brings them to Adam to see what he would name them. This was not merely Adam functioning as a random name generator. Right? Bob, Fred, Jim, Sam. Right? That's, that's not what he's doing. That's not the point at all. Um, what he's doing is actually um, he's, beginning, he's, he's, he's beginning the process of determining what these animals are and what they're for. And we know that since the conclusion of this process is the determination that a helper suitable was not found. Right? So that's how we know what he was doing when he was naming them. It was not just something to call them. He's trying to find a helper. And the conclusion of the matter is that Adam and God know that no helper suitable has been found. So the process of naming was also a process of taxonomy. Right? That's, that's what we call the, the, um, the ordered uh, naming, uh, the genus, phylum, class, order, something or other. Right? One of you here probably knows it. Um, right? So th this, is, this is just one of you. Um, but this, this, is how, um, this is how Adam names the animals. He's, he's classifying them according to what they are, what they're for, what they're good at, what they wouldn't be good at. And he's, so he's learning a ton 
as he names them. He's at least beginning that uh, process. He, um, he also needs to figure out, um, he's, he's beginning to understand um, what they need to be served and protected. Right, so the same job descriptions that he was given in general for the garden are now, by implication, applied to the animals. What does this animal need? What does this animal need? What do I need to watch out for this animal? Th- that's, that's the idea. These expanded, that job description, description is now applied to the animals that have been created. And uh, that includes the potential strengths, how they might be made more fruitful, what they're good at, and so forth. This is the task of serving and guarding applied to the animals. So given this process, from the initial statement, here's your job, serve and guard the garden, and then you have, he needs a helper, walk through all the animals, not one of the animals is suitable to Adam. Given this process from the initial statement of purpose uh, of man to serve and guard, to a search for a helper comparable to him, when Adam wakes up and meets his bride, there's every exegetical reason in the world to assume that the same task is still before him, serving and guarding his wife. This is the job that he's been given, and this is what he's going to continue to do. And this seems to be confirmed and underlined, just in case you think, wait a sec, that seems like a stretch, pastor. Well, I think it's underlined by the fact that Adam immediately names his wife. By naming her, he's talking about explicitly where she came from. But remember, the whole reason he was naming all the animals was to talk about what they are, what they're for, what they're good at, what they need, what they might be able to do. All those things, because why? Well, because his job is to serve and guard. His his job is to see the nature of things and understand, watch carefully, so you know what they're like, what they need, how they thrive, what might threaten them, and what they might be good for. That was the job from the beginning. That's what he's doing in naming the animals. And so when his wife shows up on the scene, we have every reason to believe that Adam understands that his job is also to serve and guard her. He has to begin studying this new part of creation and understand what she's like. What, uh, how does she respond under certain circumstances? Um, how will she thrive? What is she for? Well, he knows somewhat already but he has to continue to learn. So he names her woman because she was taken out of man. He has begun to understand her, to serve her, to watch her carefully in order to protect her, in order to cause her to thrive. So, our first question. What does the, why does the world need husbands and fathers? Why does the world need husbands and fathers? for the same reason the world needs serving and guarding. Does the world need serving and guarding? Yes. Well, this is what a man is for. A man is made to work and guard, serve and protect, tend and watch over, which is to say, take responsibility for everything and everyone around him to the best of his ability. And we insist on this while also asserting that when a man does this faithfully, as a husband and father, he is necessarily making everything and everyone around him as fruitful as they possibly can be, as glorious as they can possibly be. And in particular, with regard to his family, he is building a team. He is building a small army 
of helpers and assistants to the task. He's sharing with them precisely what he was given to do because that's what he needs. He needs help in doing that. All of this, I would submit to you, is bound up in the, the job description. Tend and keep. Serve and guard. This is what a man is for. So why should men marry and have children? It's, you should, it's already um, included in the original question, but let's drill down even further. But, but really, can't I just sort of act husbandly in general? I will tend and guard in general. You know, uh, I, I, will, I will do that without, without settling down, marrying and having kids. I, I'll, I'll be sort of fatherly in general, maybe, you might think. Isn't there a way out? Uh, no, there's not a way out. Um, why should you marry and have children, men? Uh, this I want to answer in two different directions. The first is um, generally maps with the previous question and answer, um, but just from sort of general revelation, um, common grace reasoning. Um, it's a great blessing to the world when men marry and bear children and stay faithful to their family until they die. Even in a fallen world, uh, even apart from Christ, the common grace of marriage and family is a tremendous blessing to human society. Um, this is uh, borne out by statistics the world round. Um, this is something that I just did a quick Google, you know, I wonder if I can find anything on this, and it just, right? Even in a world like ours, even Google can't hide it from me, Right? You know, you know, and I clicked on a number of them because I thought surely there'll be somebody in here saying, actually, who's to say? But all of them, all of them around just said, generally speaking, the statistics show that human cultures, um, and with regard to health, right, where families are intact, culture is more healthy. I didn't even know that. That makes sense, right? Where families are intact, uh, cultures are generally happier. Where families are intact, education is higher. Where families are intact, productivity and economic uh, stability and financial success, better, higher. Where families are intact, addiction, lower. Where families are intact, crime, lower. All of this points to the common grace blessing of marrying and bearing children. And this is just, you know, Google. St. Google. You know? Even Google, right? It's like, it's right there. And, and it's, it is right there on the surface, not hiding anywhere. It's just, and it's just statistics. Yeah, there's exceptions. I know. You know, everybody could raise their hand and be like, well, I heard about so-and-so, and it didn't work out. Okay, I get it. It's statistics. It's, it's a generalization. All things being equal. All things being equal, this is what marriage and child-rearing does to culture. And, as I was doing some of the hunting around, uh, a number of these places were noting the trends of uh, the, the, the relative rate of marriage of men is dropping dramatically. Over the last hundred years, it's dropped. And the average age of first marriage for men has spiked. So men are getting married less, and they're getting married when they do much later. So in 1890, the average age of men getting married was around 26. It, 
it slowly went down to about the 1950s or 60s where it was at its all-time low, where the average for men first marriage was about 23. And since about uh, 1960, it's been climbing rapidly, and it's now at almost 30 in, in, nearly in 2019. Um, likewise, the actual rate of marriage used to be around 80%. It's dropped now to nearly 50. So there, but there you have it. That's just statistics. That's common grace. That's general revelation. And that's just from, you know, random average people looking around out their eyes and saying, look, this is what happens. People are generally healthier, happier, um, more educated, less crime, um, and so on. My second answer, though, why should men marry and have children is um, going back to the pages of scripture. What does the Bible say? Why um, do men need to become husbands and fathers? Why do they need to see this um, as a high priority on their list of goals? The answer is it makes them better men. It will make you a better man. I'm not saying, nor does the Bible teach, that men cannot become better men without a wife or children. But what I am saying is that the ordinary way in which men become better men is through the mission and adventure of learning to love one woman faithfully and love her children uh, that she gives you. So all things being equal, I commend marriage and fatherhood to all the men in this room because it will make you a better man and in the process you'll be making the world a better place. I want to underline this, I want to point this out to you in our text. Now, the point is already exhibited in the creation of Adam through a really, what I find, just a, fa a fabulous uh, linguistic move. Some of you have heard this um, before, but I want to say it so often that you can then repeat it on command when anybody says, but really, does the Bible really teach that? And you say, yeah, and you can break out your Hebrew, okay? Okay, so, so you've, some of you heard this before, some of you haven't, but it's right there in the text, but it's, it's obscured in our English, um, and, it's, and, it's, and you wouldn't know if, if you don't know Hebrew. Um, the, the point is, is that um, all through chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's one word used for man. And the word is Adam. So, where, so wherever you see Adam, it's Adam. And wherever it says man, it's Adam. You're, tricked you, see? But now you know Hebrew, right? And so it's Adam, 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 all the way through chapter 2, all the way until verse 23. Every time it says man, it's Adam, Adam. Why is he called Adam? Because he was taken out of the ground, and the word dam, uh, sorry, Adama, means ground. So he's named after the ground. He came out of the ground, he's named after the ground. That's what God named him. And that's what he's called all the way through. Then, in verse 23, something striking happens. When Adam names his wife... So it says, and Adam said, and of course that's Adam, it says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, and he names her woman. But it's a, the word there is Isha. Isha in Hebrew. And, uh, which means woman, and it seems to be related to the word for fire. Because men have noticed that women are hot for a long time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in creation. Um, that, that, but that's... It's right there in the Hebrew, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, he names her fire. Fire, right? Um, glory, right? That, he, that's what he names her. And, and then, in the same breath, says, she shall be called woman, fire, 
because she was taken out of, and for the very first time in the history of the world, a new name is actually given to man. It's not Adam. He calls himself Ish. You hear the similarity. A woman is Isha, and he says, now I'm Ish. Right? Now, now he has a new name. Now that this new creature exists, this woman exists, now that he's married, now he's been changed. And he's kind of named after the fire. Right? He's still a man, but he's now man glorified. He's now man on fire. Right? That's what, the, that's what he names himself. Adam's face is shining with the fire glory of his wife. He says, now that you're here, I'm different. You've completely changed me. You've lit me up. He said, this is lit. <laughs> is, that how the ki- is that how they say it? I don't know. No, okay, all right. I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll stop. The point is that Adam has become a better man. Right? That's what Adam says, I've become a better man. I'm a new man. I'm a better man than I was before. And then, whether it was Adam or another narrator who added the following words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Either way, whoever said it, whether it was Adam or later a writer, the Bible says then that the glory of a wife the way she glorifies or crowns her husband is a good reason to find one. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Why? Because don't you want what Adam just had? Don't you want what Adam was just given? That kind of glory? Just in case you doubt that, Proverbs 12.4 says, an excellent wife is a crown of her husband. Paul says the woman is the glory of man. 1 Corinthians 11, 7. That's, she's, she's the fire. She's the glory. And she glorifies man. She's a crown to her husband. She makes him a better man. More of a man. The last thing I want to point out is just that this process was not easy or painless. And so the last reason why you should become a husband and a father, why you should seek to marry and bear children, I didn't say this at the beginning because I was afraid that you might leave, is because it's hard. You should do it because it's hard. And we see that also here. It wasn't easy for Adam, even in a perfect unfallen world, God had put Adam under heavy anesthesia, cut open his side, broke out one of Adam's rib bones, and even in in an unfallen world, even with God's magic, I doubt this was completely painless. When Adam woke up, there must have been some discomfort and soreness. is that in order for Adam to meet his bride 
He had to be cut open, lose a rib. He had to go through surgery. He went into a deep, coma-like sleep. Figuratively, he had to die in order to meet his bride. We're told in the New Testament that this first marriage was a type pointing ahead to Jesus in his marriage to the Christian church. So even if you think, well, I don't know, maybe it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was God and it was before the fall and maybe God just did a real magic thing and it was like painless and easy. Well, actually, I would submit to you that it couldn't have been because the New Testament explicitly says that it was a type of Jesus dying on the cross. Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, quoting Genesis 2. And then Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And if we just go back a few verses, we find this, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5, 25. How are husbands to love their wives? As Christ loved the church, how did he love the church? By giving himself for her by laying his life down for her, by suffering, bleeding, and dying for her, by being mocked and rejected by her. And then a little further down, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Jesus laid his own life down for us in order to save us, but also for the joy and the glory that was set before him in obedience to his Father. He loved the church so that he might present her to himself, a glorious church so that we might be his crown. So why does the world need fathers and husbands? Why should men marry and have children? Because it's hard. But it's the kind of hard that rewards the effort on so many more levels than we even understand. It's the kind of hard that imitates the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the benefits of which we can't fathom. To be able to imitate that kind of love On the one hand, you think, but I don't want to die like that. I don't want to be rejected like that. But think of the glory. Think of the glory. What is more heroic than that? Every boy is born into this world wants to be a hero. No, No boy comes out and says, no, I'm not doing guns. Swords, no, please. No, every boy comes into this world and it doesn't matter who they are, what culture they're in, they find something and they just know, right? I need to kill something, (laughs) right? I, I need to protect people, I need to defend people, I need to fight people, and I need to win, right? Everything in a man's life is about winning, right? You guys can say amen. We want to win. And that's not evil. The problem is that we're sinners, and that desire to win gets twisted. It gets twisted in with sinful pride, and it gets twisted in with the desire for a wrong kind of glory, to win at the wrong things. But God made you for glory. He made you to hunger for it. but you need to seek it according to the way he made the world. And here, 
laid down in Scripture for us is the calling, hey, men, pursue this. Pursue this glory. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. She'll probably say no like five times or maybe a hundred. Or maybe she's not the one and it's someone else. And then maybe finally when you get her to say yes, her dad will say no. Or the other way around. Right? Or then finally you get married. And then it's just begun. (laughs) But do you want that glory? Do you want that fire? Do you want that crown? Think about the way that God showed Adam all of creation, in a sense. None of it was good enough for Adam. None of it was comparable to him. I mean, just think about this. I mean, lions are kind of scary. I mean, there were dinosaurs. No, no, it's too easy still. Right? No, you need is a woman. Because that's what will make you a man. You you know, you go to the gym, and if you're actually working out, and you're not just looking at yourself in the mirror, and (laughs) if you're actually working out, right, you, you do what you can't do. You find out what the max is, right? If you're not maxing out, you're not working out. And God in his infinite kindness says, here, men, find a good woman. She'll max you out. And then you'll finally become better. This is, I think, what's partially going on in Proverbs 30. And I'll close here. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. Just think about those things. You know how to fly? No, you don't know how to fly. (laughs) You tame serpents? No, you don't tame serpents. None of you do. Maybe Dr. Gordon Wilson. (laughs) But he's weird. Any of you ever sailed a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? Let's see it. Hand? No, I didn't think so. And he says, you know what's even more? I mean, because in Hebrew poetry, it always builds. It's building. He says, okay, when you've tamed eagles, serpents, and sailed across the ocean, then you're kind of approaching the glory of winning a woman. That's the kind of glory marriage and family is. In order to do that, you need Christ, who did the hardest thing, who laid his life down for us. But in him, if you know him, if you have his spirit, then you're made for this kind of glory. 
Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was a true and faithful man. Thank you that he is our hero, our savior. Thank you that he won, that he conquered our sin, death and Satan. Thank you that he rose up victorious. And Father, thank you that he has given us his spirit, given us access to that victory so that we might be new men, true men. Father, I pray that you bless us every man in this room, as we seek to imitate that, as we seek to know Christ and him crucified. Father, I pray also for all the women in this room. I pray that as the men in this room are faithful to God, it would be a glorious example and an enormous blessing to the women. I pray likewise that the women wouldn't wait around, but that they would be faithfully pursuing Christ with all the gifts and glories that you've given them, and in so doing be a great blessing to the men here. Father, thank you for this great gift, this glory of being made male and female in your image. Thank you for it, and we thank you for the gift of marriage and family. And I pray, Father, in the years to come, uh, this room would have turned into a multitude because of your blessing on us and for the glory of marriage and family. Father, we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.